Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Please visit patreon.com slash talking tutors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family to instantly unlock access to 129 exclusive posts, including 22 audio releases and 30 videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. May's prize is a copy of Tudor Mystery, The Master of the Countess of Warwick, published to accompany the exhibition Tudor Mystery, A Master Painter Revealed. The lucky winner will also receive a portrait miniature of Thomas Nivett. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that Dr. Tracy Borman is joining me on the show to chat about her new book, Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, The Mother and Daughter Who Changed History. It will be released in the UK today on the 18th of May and in the USA on the 20th of June. Tracy is a best-selling author, historian and broadcaster specialising in the Tudor period. Her books include Elizabeth's Women, Thomas Cromwell, The Private Lives of the Tudors and Crown and Scepter, a new history of the British monarchy from William the Conqueror to Charles III. Tracy has also written a fiction trilogy, The King's Witch, based in the court of James I. Her latest non-fiction book is Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, The Mother and Daughter Who Changed History. Tracy is also Joint Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces, Chief Executive of the Heritage Education Trust and Chancellor of Bishop Grostest University in her native Lincoln. She's presented a number of history programs for Channel 5 and the Smithsonian Channel, including The Fall of Anne Boleyn, Inside the Tower of London and Henry VIII and the King's Men. She's a regular contributor to BBC History Magazine and gives talks on her books across the country and abroad. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
Welcome back to Talking Tudors, Tracy. How are you? It's so nice to be back with you, Natalie. I'm very well. And as you know, I'm always happy to talk Tudors. <laughs> exactly. I love it. I've been looking forward to our conversation. So we are here today to talk about your wonderful new book, Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, The Mother and Daughter Who Changed History. So Tracy, do you want to tell us a little bit about what inspired this particular work? Well, the genesis of this book really started quite a few years ago when I wrote my book, Elizabeth's Women. Now, that one looks at all of the women who influenced my favourite queen. And Anne Boleyn was, of course, the first woman in her life. And in a book that looks at all the women, like 50 or so women, I could only give Anne a chapter. And she deserves so much more than just a chapter because I found out enough about their relationship to convince me there was so much more to discover, to say, And that really it flies in the face of this popular misconception that Elizabeth thought nothing about Anne because, you know, she was less than three when Anne was executed. Actually, what I discovered is she revered her mother's memory. She spent the rest of her life trying to rehabilitate the woman who had gone down in history as the great whore, the concubine. And Elizabeth really made it her life's work uh, to rehabilitate Anne, to make people respect her. As, as the great queen that she was. Well, I think you've done a fabulous job with your book and I highly oh, recommend it to, to anyone thank listening. Thank you. And That's so, and so nice to hear. You know, we, we hear so much about Anne, but we don't often hear about Anne the mother and that particular role in her life. So do, do you want to tell us what we know of what she was like as a mother? Yeah, because she doesn't strike you, and I don't want to, you know, stereotype or anything like this, but as an obviously maternal woman, we see Anne as this political operator and, and of course, you know, famously beguiled Henry VIII. But that maternal bond was so strong, it was obvious from the moment of Elizabeth's birth, even though her sex might have been a disappointment to the king, there was no hint of that with Anne. And she couldn't get enough of Elizabeth. She had uh, this beautiful velvet cushion made so that Elizabeth could be placed next to her while Anne was conducting court business. She courted a bit of a scandal by trying to breastfeed Elizabeth and, and that was just not done for a royal wife or a noble wife. Indeed, Henry was furious when he found out. And Anne really doted on Elizabeth. She showered her with gifts, uh, pretty made-to-measure dresses and caps for this tiny little princess. Uh, and those first three months of Elizabeth's life were so precious for Anne. But it, it was just all too brief because three months is all you get as a royal mother, really. Uh, it's pretty traditional for then your baby to be sent off to their own household. And that's what happened with Elizabeth. Yeah, I think I always find those those final accounts for Anne so heartbreaking because she does spend so much time obviously thinking and focusing about Elizabeth and, and purchasing her beautiful items. It just, yeah, it's, it's very heartbreaking, isn't it? It's so heartbreaking. Elizabeth is on her mother's mind right to the end. Like There are still unpaid accounts in the National Archives for uh, Queen Anne Boleyn, uh, and you know the last things that she's she's ordering are clothes for her daughter. So yeah, Elizabeth is on her mind to the end, and I think it was Elizabeth who was on Anne's mind during that scaffold speech because people have, you know, queried this: why on earth didn't Anne just go for Henry? This was not a woman who was afraid of expressing an opinion, and she had been unjustly condemned to die, and and yet. She was very humble uh, on the scaffold and, and didn't speak against Henry. That was all for Elizabeth. She wanted him to look kindly on their daughter. So, yeah, right to the end, Anne's oh, thoughts man. were of her daughter. 
Absolutely. I totally agree with you. So Tracy, in what ways do you think that Anne did and maybe still does inspire people to to think differently and break the boundaries of what's expected of women, I suppose? Yeah, I think one of the reasons we're all so fascinated uh, by Anne Boleyn is that she was so far ahead of her time. She was a woman in a man's world. She was expressing opinions, wielding huge authority. And I think the time that she had spent in France was really formative in this respect. So in her youth, of course, she was sent there by her father to serve um, the Queen of France. She came up against sort of female intellectuals such as as Marguerite of Navarre. Um, She read the works of Christine de Pizan, all of them saying, look, women have a brain too. You know, we should be listened to. We're perfectly capable of wielding authority. And this changed Anne, I think, quite profoundly, so that by the time she arrived in the English court, she wanted to put all this into practice, all of these amazing, inspiring uh, examples that she learned from. And she did. And there hadn't really been a, a woman like it, just a, I was going to say commoner, but she wasn't. She she was a daughter of a fairly high-ranking nobleman. Uh, but nevertheless, she came from nowhere and she took the court by storm. And it was a, a dazzling rise. And of course, sadly, it was a equally drastic fall. So you've talked a little bit about, obviously, the fact that Anne doesn't get very much time with Elizabeth before she's kind of shipped off to her own establishment. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about what Elizabeth's life was like as a, as a yeah. sort of infant and young child? That's right. Yeah. So Elizabeth grew up much closer to her attendants than to her mother. She, How could she really know much about her mother except from the gifts and the occasional visits? So she was sent to Hatfield initially. Uh, that became her main sort of childhood residence, uh, accompanied by about 50 servants so for this tiny baby. Uh, I always find that quite astonishing, including four women whose sole purpose was to to rock her cradle and, and kind of keep the infant pacified, I guess. And so it was for the first two and a bit years, it was a, a very luxurious upbringing. Elizabeth was now heir to the throne. She had supplanted Henry's elder daughter, Mary, so she was served as such. But then that dramatically changed on Anne's execution in May 1536. Literally, it changed overnight for Elizabeth. And even though she's not yet three, she's a very precocious young girl and she immediately appreciates that something has changed because she famously asks her governor, Sir John Shelton, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but why is everybody calling me Lady Elizabeth when yesterday it was Princess Elizabeth? And that's because she was now illegitimate because Anne's marriage to Henry had been annulled And that rendered Elizabeth, you know, a a mere bastard, whereas before she'd been heir to the throne. And from thenceforth, her life was very different. Yes, I think Elizabeth certainly inherited her mother's ability to be very observant and a very hard (laughs) learner. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. So, Tracy, what do you think were some of Anne's greatest achievements? Oh, well, I would put uh, religion up there. I I really would. Anne was a great reformer. Now, she was interested in reforming the church from within. So even though I would say she was the uh, the sort of impetus behind the break with Rome, because Henry wanted, of course, an annulment from Catherine of Aragon. Um, Anne, anyway, was a reformer. For Anne, it was more than just political expediency, this, this radical religious revolution. She had been for years sort of fostering uh, reformers, actually receiving books that were borderline heretical. She took risks for her faith um, and she was 
far ahead of her time. She was questioning, you know, the abuses of and corruption in the in the Catholic Church long before most other people. And she was truly devout, truly inspiring, I think, in this respect. And that left a profound impression on her daughter, Elizabeth, because Anne made sure that Elizabeth was surrounded by the same influences in terms of religion. She asked her chaplain, Matthew Parker, to care for Elizabeth uh, shortly before she died, you know, to sort of take care of her spiritually, if you like. And Elizabeth later made Parker her Archbishop of Canterbury. So that had a profound influence. So through Anne's influence, I don't think it's overstating the case to say England ultimately became a Protestant country. That was realised in the reign of her daughter Elizabeth. But also Anne blazed a trail for other Queen's consort, uh, no longer just confined to the royal nursery, the production of heirs. I think Anne was such an inspiring role model for others to emulate and none more so than her daughter Elizabeth. Anne had shown what was possible as a woman in a man's world. And Elizabeth took it, of course, a stage further. She was able to. She was a queen regnant, not just a queen consort. And I think as well as learning from Anne's example, she perhaps learned from, I don't know if we can even call them mistakes, but for example, Anne's flirtatious relationship with with her male courtiers, Elizabeth definitely replicated that. They were both natural flirts. But Elizabeth was much more cautious because of what had happened to her mother. So yeah, those two things, I think, left a huge imprint that Anne's Anne's religious drive, but also just her inspiration as as a woman who was able to exert unimaginable authority. And maybe let's talk a little bit about some of the specific ways that Elizabeth honoured her mother's memory, because I know a lot of the time you've probably seen it too, Tracy, when people say, oh, no, Elizabeth never spoke about her mother. And it's kind of so frustrating, because as you've said, she she did. So tell us about some of those examples. I couldn't agree more. It's so frustrating. I often hear it quoted. She only mentioned her twice and yes. it said as a definite. It was so much more than that. But to be fair for Elizabeth, I think it was more actions than words. She did mention her mother, but she was also a political operator. So, of course, she draws public attention to her father. And that was expedient because a lot of people thought Elizabeth shouldn't be on the throne. She was a heretic and she was illegitimate. So, of course, she's going to emphasize the fact that Henry VIII is her father. It makes sense. But in private and in actions, it's all about Anne Boleyn. So one very obvious way in which Elizabeth honoured her mother was to surround herself with Boleyns as queen. Really, if you were a Boleyn relative, then you were a shoo-in for a role in Elizabeth's court and particularly in her private world, uh, her privy chamber. It was dominated by the Boleyns, the Careys. Uh, the Nollises, you know, all of these branches of the Boleyn family, um, some Howard relatives in there too. And it was so obvious that, you know, almost it was impossible to to get a position close to Elizabeth unless you were related to her mother. And then those positions almost became hereditary because they went to the the daughters or the sons of those uh, that original generation. So that was a really, really telling way, I think, uh, that Elizabeth honoured her mother. I also love the personal the fact that she surrounded herself with mementos of her late mother. Of course, one of the most famous being the Checkers ring. I don't know your opinion on this, Natalie, but for me, I think it definitely is Anne Boleyn in that little locket ring. And Elizabeth had this from the 1570s. We don't know if she was given it or if she commissioned it, but it was precious to her. This locket ring, so tiny, 
opened to reveal a portrait of her mother and of herself. And looking through Elizabeth's inventories, as I did in detail for this book, there were so many other things that she chose to to keep from Anne's possessions, because as Henry VIII was very good at, you know, when a wife fell, her possessions would go back to him. And ultimately, his children were able to choose what they wanted. And I, f I find it fascinating that when Henry died in 1547, Edward and Mary, Elizabeth's siblings, they got first choice. They were ahead of her in the in the pecking order. And they chose the sort of richest items. But Elizabeth chose items associated with her mother. Uh, and they weren't necessarily the highest value, but they were to her. Uh, and she kept those with her throughout her life. Yeah, that's so incredibly touching. And I totally agree with you, Tracy. I think the checkers ring is Anne. I can't see that it can be anybody yeah. else. And I remember when you got to hold it for a sort oh. of recording. <laughs> it was just the most incredible spine tingling moment of my career. And so I can't even emphasize that how tiny it is. It wouldn't fit on any of my fingers. Wow. And I, we know that both Anne and Elizabeth were very proud of their long, slender fingers. And you see why, because it's so tiny, you don't even feel it in the palm of your hand. It's, it's the most amazing piece of history. But for something so small, it gives such a powerful message for how Elizabeth felt towards her mother. Absolutely. And so given this impact and influence that Anne had on her daughter, do you think Elizabeth herself broke the mould for 16th century queens as well? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. She was her mother's triumph um, and she modelled herself, I think, on Anne. Um, I, you know, part of it might have been uh, nature over nurture because, of course, Anne hadn't been around to, to personally shape Elizabeth for that long. But absolutely, when Elizabeth came to the throne, she followed um, two queens who had been very short reigning, her sister Mary for five years and then, of course, Lady Jane Grey, the nine days queen. And neither of those had done really very much to convince people that queens were a good idea. You know, they were already seen as a, a bit of a disaster because this was an age uh, and most of our history until the late queen changed it was all about the male heir and it was a male dominated succession. So nobody thought Elizabeth was going to be any different. But by the end of her long reign in 1603, uh, she'd won hearts and minds. She'd made, I think, England fall in love with queens and that's something that, that was changed for good. And it really paved the way for successors such as Queen Anne, Queen Victoria, and even our late Queen Elizabeth's namesake. I think they owed a lot to the original, and I would say the best, of uh, England's Queen's, Queen's Regnant. Absolutely. And, and so what in terms of Elizabeth I's legacy, what would you sort of state as the most important things that she should be remembered for? Yeah, well, I think that is certainly one of them, just changing perceptions that, that actually women could uh, wield power effectively. They, it wasn't necessarily monstrous, as, uh, as Knox famously declared when Elizabeth uh, became queen. So that, that was a huge change. She established peace in England for almost half a century after one of the most turbulent periods in its history with the Reformation. And she inherited a country deeply divided between Catholics and Protestants. And I think Elizabeth was so skilled at pragmatism. She'd seen what happens if you're a bit too principled and if you just stick with what you believe, like her sister Mary had, it's not what's required as the monarch. So she established peace. 
and therefore prosperity. And it was during her reign that England emerged as a world power. Of course, the defeat of the Armada, but also the begin beginnings of empire for good and bad. You know, trade was, was thriving. Um, and also it was a sort of flowering of culture with the likes of Shakespeare and Spencer. I think it was a very self-confident age. It really put England on the map. And I think a, an awful lot of that, if not pretty much all of it, was down to Elizabeth herself. Right, I think you've summed that up absolutely beautifully. <laughs> Thank so, you. It's always quite uh, intimidating to say, so what did Elizabeth do? Because I was the legacy I've got question a, is yeah, hard. It's, it's so huge. It's so huge. But I want to do Elizabeth justice. So thank you. I think you've done an incredible job. And And so, Tracy, is your book out at the moment or is it coming up soon to be released? So my book is out on the 18th of May in the UK Lovely. and it's out it's out in the States in June. So only it's sort of a couple of weeks after the UK release date, which I'm pleased about because quite often there's a bit of a gap. So um, and I'm not sure yet about other territories, but uh, but yes, it's uh, not long to wait now. Oh, that's fantastic. And are you working on any other exciting Tudor projects at the moment? <laughs> I am. I am. As soon as I finish this uh, theatre tour that I'm in the middle of, I am going to be writing a novel. In fact, I've started it. So I'm going back to fiction for uh, the next three books, I think. That's the plan at the moment. Uh, it's not a trilogy. It is a novel. And all I can say is it's Tudor. And I think you would approve. Oh, I can't wait. This is so exciting. <laughs> so watch this space, I think, is what you're saying. So we will we'll be patient. We'll wait. And the very last thing, Tracy, that I ask all my guests is for a takeaway, a Tudor takeaway. So basically, this is something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. Sometimes people give us a film or a song to listen to. Do you have a Tudor takeaway? Yes, I have a Tudor takeaway. It was hard to narrow it down to just one. And we've already mentioned the, the Checkers Ring, which is a sort of mother-daughter thing. But the thing that I would say, please go check out, is uh, I curated an online exhibition for the National Archives called Elizabeth I's Monarchy. And it's got a whole wealth of incredible digitised documents there. You can really explore them um, all about how Elizabeth shaped her monarchy. There's a bit in there, of course, about Anne Boleyn, uh, Elizabeth's rivals, uh, Elizabeth's style of government, and just her extraordinary skill as an image maker. Uh, so yeah, you'll find that on the National Archives website if you search under Elizabeth the First Monarchy, uh, and there it is. Wonderful. And I'll add a link to that to our show notes that make it easy for everyone to find. And Tracy, I know how busy you are. So I'm so grateful that you came back onto the podcast to talk to you just with us again. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, I always love chatting with you. So anytime, hope to see you again soon. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.